Um, so anyway, so I, I'm rambling here, I feel like, but we, we get back to this thing, this den of robbers, that there is a, this gets to that political dimension that sometimes is, is, is kind of hidden because of mm-hmm. our translation. And, you know, and, and we need to be honestly very generous with translators because there's every Greek word can mean multiple things, just like every English or almost every English word can mean multiple things. And you're trying to figure this out and put it into its context. Uh, and that takes difficulty. And then, and then even, you know, as you have entrenched translations that yeah. may not necessarily surely convey the totality of what's being said, you've got a, a problem even of the confusion that, that changing it to maybe That's a more exactly appropriate right. word might cause for folks or doubt or, or concern. So you, there's a lot going on here. And, uh, but we get to this, you know, you've made this into a den of insurrection, a place mm-hmm. where you're trying to launch God's kingdom by mm-hmm. force. And, and so as the story unfolds, I think it becomes really interesting that Luke's going to bring out the fact that later on, like they're going to essentially take a, take an assessment of their battle armor and they've got <laughs> two swords. Yeah. And so like when you consider, uh, and even as Jesus is rescued, you've come out against me uh, with all of these swords and, and, and clubs. And, and, and then we have that robber. I think that when he, when he's arrested, that robber word is used again, right. like I'm a robber, which again, seems a little, I think we would have to admit a little out of place. And, um, it just and, Luke, so then, Luke likes that word a lot. He, he uses he it. Does. He uses it for, he for the temple. He uses it for Barabbas. And if I'm not mistaken, Luke has the, the third guy on the cross as a brigand is right. Is that Luke is, that has it? I get all yeah, my uh, confused. Yeah. So when we get over there, they make it really clear that they're dying justly. So uh, that they, you know, that it seems from probably murder uh, since that's sort of, I don't know that it comes out and says exactly what they, um, what they were guilty of, but he says that we're in this place justly, probably because they've committed murder, probably because, uh, or insurrection or both. Uh, I don't think it's yeah, which is like Barabbas. a possibility it, it that they were that, in yeah. cahoots with Barabbas. I mean, it doesn't yeah. say that, but it's, yeah. it certainly could be within the realm of possibility. Um, so yeah, there's a, a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's in verse uh, 52 of chapter 22 when Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? And I think, like, that would only be with a certain kind of robber. And and I think insurrectionist uh, is probably the better sort of view of this. And then he says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. Uh, so you've got this sort of, in a way, even here, Jesus is kind of taunting them with their um, with their betrayal of God's kingdom, with their cowardice mm-hmm. of not arresting him in front of the people. And I think that's another thing, just sort of historically, that each of the Gospels makes clear. You know, they're on the Mount of Olives there. This is the only night they don't go back to Bethany, which is a reminder that they're, this is Passover. They weren't allowed under the law. Like Jesus is not like a lawbreaker, a willy-nilly lawbreaker either. Uh, and Luke brings that out even with like his parents taking him to Jerusalem in chapter right. two. Like the... Like he does not come out of a, you know, hippie revolutionary kind of family that's right. going off the bounds of the law or whatever. Like this is a family that meticulously kept the law. They are, they are, these are people that, that, that have taught their son the law and things like that. And so they're staying in Jerusalem. 
uh, within the sort of broader confines, as long as you can see the temple at sort of sort of greater Jerusalem. And and the thing when I went to Jerusalem, really, I think I don't know if it was the first or the second time. I think it was the second time standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think maybe even that day we had gone to the place where it's believed that that Jesus was on trial uh, before the Sanhedrin. Uh, and you sort of think about where you're situated, kind of, kind of across the Kidron Valley from the side of the temple where I'm sort of, it's in my back. I would be kind of from the perspective of the Mount of Olives. Um, my, I, like I would be looking at you on the Mount of Olives. You'd be looking over my shoulder from the Mount of Olives that, that, that they're going to be coming essentially from that um, northwest corner. So this back corner right there where my hand is right there. They're going to be coming from further uh, up the hill to the north and the west. And, you know, you've got hundreds, maybe thousands of folks camping on the Mount of Olives that night. Mm. They're coming across Jerusalem in the middle of the night in the dark with torches, I'm sure. And you've got a crowd. This is sort of first century shock and awe. And um, they're going to make sure they get him. Uh, and like they needed Judas. It would have been, you know, not a needle in a haystack, uh, but kind of like a needle in a stack of needles to find him on the mountain that night. That's a great Jesus. point. Yeah. And, you know, and, and one of the things that when it first sort of dawned on me, I, I think it was in the trip to Jerusalem and in, in a, uh, some uh, talk that I heard uh, a scholar give that was sort of a, that he 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 was really into the historical background of the New Testament that that he said like that it would have been very easy and it never really dawned on me until I went I guess went to Jerusalem after I heard him say this that it would have been very easy for Jesus to have gone over the Mount of Olives to Bethany and then disappeared. Mm. And then sitting there in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, looking sort of at where most likely they would have come from, but certainly from a distance, to realize in a way that I'd never realized before, that in, that in some ways, I think it would be fair to say that Jesus literally saw them from a mile away. Mm. Like, like he said, like, like I don't think like the gospel writers don't bring it out, but standing there historically, you know, as he's praying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He, like, can he doesn't see have it. a death wish. He's not, like, it's not masochistic. Like, I think the full reality of the weight of what it meant to bear the sins of the world was right. coming upon him. Uh, maybe in the providence of the father that that reality and his emptying of himself had been uh, hidden from view. I don't, I don't really know exactly all that was going on there. There's no way to really unravel that. I think historically and theologically and, and Jesus being fully God and fully man, like th th there's obviously going to be speculation there, but this is weighing what this is weighing on him and, and he can see them. And there's this building of resolve. Yeah. That that he is going to do the will of the Father, not as what is so, sort of what the what a human being would do. Right. Like in many ways, this is going to be fleshed out in in, in Romans and other places that uh, in First Corinthians fifteen, in the context of the resurrection, that 
that where where Adam failed, Jesus did. That's right. And I think it's fascinating that there's a garden connection. That is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. There's trees playing in the garden. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating, and and, um, so Tim Mackey and John Mark Comer from, uh, well, I can't remember, it's Tim Mackey and the other guy from the Bible Project. They just did a podcast, and I would highly recommend the Bible Project. They did a podcast on trees, and it was fascinating to hear Tim Mackey talk about the the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then the trees that would have been there on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus there with, and the disciples are, I think, at some point leaning up against a tree, either it's in the Gospels or it's in a Jesus movie that I've seen too many of. I can't remember if it's explicit, but it's true. There's a fascinating connection there between Jesus facing what seems to be a better option for obeying the Father and the contrast with what well, exactly what Adam and Eve were faced with and failed. Yeah, like you've got this, this reality of am, am I, do I trust God to accomplish his purposes and to bring his reign and rule to the ends of the earth or am I going to try to do it my way? That's right. And particularly with Judas, because Jesus has said after the after the Last Supper that Satan is going to go do his thing through Judas. And so in some sense, Judas is yeah. Satan. He's the serpent. He's the Satan coming to tempt and coming to yeah. – he's, he's active in the story. It's, a, it's theological. Yeah, the, it's spiritual. It's all there. There's Yeah, and the, in, like in, um, in John's gospel, it's, it's even maybe a little more explicit uh, in the – he describes him as the son of perdition. He, um, you know, he says it would be better for that man to have never been born, which, right. you know, like we think about like, it's a wonderful life. Like what would, what would have happened in the world if you <laughs> hadn't been born? Like, this is the exact opposite of that. This is like the, the tragic tale of, you know, uh, but this is all happening according, according to God's, uh, God's plan. Right. And so he trusts himself. He entrusts himself to God in a way that Adam and Eve didn't, they wanted to be God. And I guess in some ways, there's the irony of the fact that he didn't have to take it for himself because he was God who had That's become right. a man. And he entrusts himself to the care of God and, and in many ways, you know, is modeling for us. Uh, you know, Jesus certainly dies in our place, takes God's wrath away um, in, in his death, uh, pays the penalty for sin, is raised gloriously to give us transformed lives uh, that is in his resurrection that we are regenerated right. that we can actually obey because the spirit dwells in us but there's also this modeling of entrusting ourselves over to right. god's plan and god's care that that like even you know now as is most of us are probably you know being discouraged from leaving our homes um that, that we can entrust ourselves to god's care in the hope of the resurrection right. that, that, that if God forbid death were to come or illness were to come, that we that, that God is the one who's sovereignly taking care of us. It doesn't mean we do stupid things. Sure. It doesn't mean that we, you know, go lick doorknobs or something like that, but, right. but it, but it does mean that, that whatever takes place, that there is a sovereign God who's in control and is accomplishing his purposes. And the end of his purpose for those who belong to him is resurrection. Right, and that's for Jesus, Jesus yeah, the writer of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, and we could, you know, maybe we have you on some other time, we can discuss who, who may or may not have written Hebrews, but the writer Only of Hebrews. God knows the answer. That's right, that. yeah. that's exactly right. So the writer of Hebrews would say that Jesus learned obedience as a son, which is also Adam language, right? It's this identical yeah. language of, of sonship. And so that, and, and this is where I want to connect to Barabbas, because Jesus is going to sure. leave 
the garden to head to this trial and then before Pilate. Yeah. I, I would see the garden as this, it's the, the garden of Gethsemane is this reversal. Jesus is fully, he's fully entering his, the word that I would use that I stole from it to right would be vocation, that he is fully, yeah. he's fully entering into this vocation of a messianic suffering servant. And so there's this reversal of the Garden of Eden. There's this, he's going to be obedient to God versus the enemy. Yeah. And, and he's going to head into Jerusalem. Talk about the trial. Is it a kangaroo court or not? Is it legitimate? Oh, I, Is it yeah, legitimate? I mean, the, so it, it's kind of like a professional wrestling match. <laughs> That's the way that I would sort of frame it. Uh, is, is what's happening inside the ring real? Yeah, it's real. People are falling. You know, they're, they're pulling their punches. They're not hitting one another. That's why it's better to watch wrestling on TV than in person. I hear I've never actually, my, my justification for when I watch wrestling in my younger years was I've never actually paid to watch it. Okay. On TV. Fair you enough. know, but like, you know, and I, I used to work out when I was in seminary with a guy that was a professional wrestler in his former <laughs> life. Uh, he, had God had called him to ministry. And so, you know, and so, he had some teenagers it was when backyard wrestling was such a big deal that he was trying to minister to, you know, and he was teaching them how to, to fall without getting hurt because people are falling. People are landing. There's a lot of body weight that's being thrown around. So there's, there's a sense in which this is real. This is mm -hmm. a real trial. It's a real fight, you know, and sometimes people actually do get mad. And they actually do fight, but, um, which he said was always really interesting. Um, <laughs> but then, but at the, but at the same time, the outcome was already predetermined. That's right. There, no matter what Jesus said, so we know said, who's going to win and who's going right. to lose. Yeah, right. This, this is a real trial. If, if perchance they could actually get to the truth, that would have been fine. But they were dealing with a problem. This was the the problem was getting worse. And when you throw in what happens in John's gospel, um, I taught on this last Sunday. This John keeps coming to my mind, like with Lazarus. Um, with Lazarus being raised back from the dead, like this thing, this, this very public thing, been dead four days, has been raised back to life. Lazarus seems to be someone that was known by important people in Jerusalem. And, and he's been raised back to life and, and he's walking around with Jesus. And in chapter 12, is like, we're not just going to kill Jesus. We're going to kill him. Yeah, we're going to get right. rid of the evidence. Any semblance of the evidence, we're getting rid of it because uh, because they wanted to maintain their place. And so, so yeah, they're looking for a pretense. That's, you know, if we wanted to summarize all of the last week of Jesus' life and his interactions with this, the scribes and the Pharisees, his interactions with the Sadducees, it was all in an effort to trip him up. It was all in an effort to get a pretense. And we'll see this, in fact, here in Luke 23. It was all in a pretense to get something on him, uh, some kind of level of dirt that they mm -hmm. could use to expose him and get him out of the picture. Can I ask you a question because here? Because he's not something... like the ones that had come before. Right, he's not. But let Go me ahead. ask you this, Dr. Mathis. Why didn't they just stone Jesus like they stoned Stephen? Why did they have to go to the Romans and put him on a cross? You know, that's a really interesting question to, to which my answer is only going to be speculative. Okay. So, yeah. so it's, it's clear, it seems, from the Gospel of John that, you know, 
there's this really interesting dog and pony show that takes place in the Gospel of John between the religious leaders and Pilate. That's right. They recognize that they've kind of got Jesus between a rock and a hard place, and they're getting ready to pick up the rock and hit him with it. They've got Pilate right where they want him. So like, you know, and, and it was, I think I was reading Wright and maybe one of his more popular books was talking about like, uh, and it was the first time I really realized it. And then as I started reading it more, I was like, yeah, there's a lot there. But like, think about how the irony of in the Gospel of John, where, where they come to Pilate's house and they make Pilate come out to them mm-hmm. because they don't want to be made unclean by going yes. into the home of a Gentile. Right. And so there's an irony there, like they're committing murder. Murder, yeah, that's right. Murder at the hands of the government. They're manipulating the situation and Pilate's the dude in charge, but because of their religious practices and his complete inability to tick them off at this point, because Pilate recognizes because of what happened a few years before when he brought the soldiers in, like, I got to handle this situation. This is a yeah, powder it's, keg. It's, it's Passover, that's a big it. deal. And yeah. it's Passover. And, and if you think about Passover, like think about all of the images that you've got throughout the history of Israel. So Passover, what happens at Passover? They're delivered from the oppression of the, the pagans. That's They're right. in Egypt as slaves and God with a mighty hand and outstretched arm delivers them out with signs and wonders, which Luke's going to use in the book of Acts. Which I think when he uses that signs and wonders language in Acts, he's not talking about, uh, frankly, I don't want to step on toes or tick people off and make you stop listening, but I don't think he's talking about believers continuing to do signs and wonders. I think he's trying to say in Jerusalem to Jews that this action is a demonstration that the new exodus has happened. Because mm-hmm. he stops using that language in chapter 15. Read it in your book of Acts. It, it'll blow and, and so we'll talk about that. So anyway, that's another topic. Right. Uh, yep. so, so you've got this reality that they're trying to put him to death. They're going to use any means necessary. The truth doesn't really matter. That's why, you know, one of the things that gets brought out in the narratives is that when they bring up the witnesses, none of them agree that Luke really kind of truncates that a little bit um, in the trial before the Sanhedrin, because he's extended the trial before the Gentiles by throwing in the story of Herod that you don't have anywhere else. Um, which takes us back in Luke's gospel to chapter nine, because Herod is clearly demonstrated as being terrified that John the Baptist has been raised back to life again. He right. wants to see Jesus. He, because obviously if John the Baptist is raised back to life again, Herod's in a bit of a bind because he, you know, cut his head off. And so, so you've got that element of it uh, in Luke's gospel. So he sort of shortens a bit the, the trial before the Sanhedrin. But the, the thing that becomes really clear is that they gather together they want to know, are you claiming to be the Messiah? And the answer to that is yes, but not in the way you're framing it. He is the Messiah, but not one who's come to Jerusalem to fight a military fight. He's come to Jerusalem to do battle with the ultimate enemy, not Rome, but sin and death. This is the language that Wright uses regularly. Uh, it's quite beautiful the way he describes it in, in the more academic work, Jesus and the Victory of God. Um, that are you the Messiah? And in Luke, there's a bit more of an interplay. I, if I tell you, you won't believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. This sort of reiterates what's happened during the week. Like if you won't tell me what you think about John the Baptist, then I'm not going to answer where I get my authority. Uh, but from now on, 
the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He makes it really clear. In Matthew and Mark, it's just the right hand of power. They would have known what that was. But for Luke's Gentile readers, he's making it very explicit. He's going to sit at the right hand of the one true and living God. And so then, uh, quite interestingly, Luke has separated this Messiah, Son of God language, which for, uh, and this gets into that whole historical reality and sort of then making application of it by the writer, I think Luke is trying to, to, to say, maybe in a bit more of an explicit way, that the language that's used by the religious leaders, this Messiah, Son of God, those essentially in the first century would have been a bit more um, synonymous than we right. might consider them, wouldn't necessarily have been considered second person of the Trinity kind of language. Right, Because exactly. that language was used of the king, like the Psalms yep. that are... Yep. are and of Israel, yeah. In the Gospels, and of Israel. And so... So now, I think in Luke separating them in, in a way, I think he's bringing out that the theological knowledge that you've gained of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, beyond just the King, beyond just this embodiment of Israel, but actually the sec, kind of second person of the Trinity, this is God in the flesh. I think maybe he could be implying that and separating those out. And, and you see, you say that I am, that I am that one. And he's, He's, he's essentially getting to the fact that that's exactly what it is. And I think historically, you know, as we sort of sift through this a little bit, historically, the thing that's really interesting, you know, in each of the Gospels, it's, it's made very clear that they think that Jesus has committed blasphemy. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't use that word here because I think Luke has, made it, has wanted to say that what they were saying about Jesus was blasphemy. He does use the explicit word blasphemy. This is why they want to put him to death. And that gets back to the John thing. You know, at the end of the day, when they want Pilate to say, uh, he says that he's the king of the Jews, Pilate finally gets the last word and says, right. what I've written, I've written. You know, because he was like, well, why don't you put him to death? Oh, that's right. You can't. And that's so right. He's, yeah. so he's kind of sticking it to them at the end. So then finally to answer your question after sort of a long ramble, um, which I hope has been interesting, but yeah. In, in in this case of Stephen, you've got a mob out of control. Right. Like, like in stoning, normally it was a pretty reserved, um, slow process. Uh, as I've heard it described, you, you would essentially push the person who was going to be stoned off of a, an embankment, a cliff. They would fall down. And then the witnesses would be involved, which sort of gets to the point of like, if you're a witness, you don't want to make false witness because you're involved in this person's death. Like, you know, you're going to be guilty of murder in a sense, I think, if it's found out later. It's That's a pretty right. good motivation not to lie in court, you know. And, uh, and there, there would be large boulders that would be dropped over on the people and, and essentially multiple ones until the person was dead. Right. And this is just people picking up rocks and flinging them. So, so I think that, that in, this, in the case of Stephen, that what you have there is a bit more mob violence. Right. And um, Not political, not, it's not that yeah, as much, yeah. This is just a group of people still with maybe some revolutionary zeal. Sure, yeah. Uh, this is a bit more common among the, the folks who had, had migrated from the dispersion who were Jews that were mainly Greek speakers like Stephen. 
like there was kind of oddly enough a bit more of that revolutionary zeal among them but i guess maybe you can see like if they took the time and effort and energy to pick up their whole lives and move to jerusalem and wait for the coming of the kingdom of god like these are like true believers kind of right and so they arrest jesus and the interesting thing that you find historically in the trial that luke i think makes lays really bare in chapter 23 verse 1 is that all of the stuff with the religious leaders is purely theological with the underlying political element. Sure. When they come to Pilate, it is explicitly political. Mm. So in verse one there, the whole company uh, of them arose, brought him before Pilate. Verse two, they began to accuse him. This is 23-2, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, leading the people into essentially revolution and apostasy forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which I think is really ironic because right. earlier on, they asked this question yeah. uh, to render, about like, you know, should we pay taxes? Sadly, Jesus says, yes, we should pay taxes to render to Caesar <laughs> the thing that belonged to Caesar, to right. God, the things that belong to God. And um, so he's not forbidding people to pay taxes. He's told them to pay their taxes, to give their tribute to Caesar because his image is on that coin. I think you could maybe imply that he's saying that God's image is on you. Um, so right. your whole selves to God. Um, yep. He didn't explicitly come out and say that, but I think you could see the implication of that. And then the last one saying that he's a king, which he is saying on the one hand and not right. on the other. And, and Pilate, it seems pretty quickly sees through that, but, but then the issue of political expediency becomes... Right. Yeah, they they had they needed the match they needed the machine the machine and the oppressive power of the state right. the pagan authorities That's to right. do their dirty work for them. But the fascinating piece is what you said earlier: the high priest who is a Sadducee, correct? Yeah, he he's was gonna, a Sadducee. He, he's they were gonna, smaller in number, but they were the ones that were in power. They had exactly. authority over the temple. And it's going to be basically with the authority and the blessing of the high priest. He's going to offer Jesus up as a sacrifice. Yeah. And so it's political, but underneath it, it's extremely theological. Yeah. And if you think about the time of year, so we're at Passover. Right. This would be a prime time for insurrection because what are they remembering? They're remembering the story of Israel. They're remembering God's intervention. Right. They're remembering freedom from oppression. They're remembering their story. That's they right. They saw themselves. And this is something I think that for us as Americans and Westerners, in, in general, but Americans in particular, we, we have a hard time seeing ourselves living as the embodiment of a story that's being played out in on history stage. Right. But history is not just history. There's a theological reality that's underpinning it. And they saw themselves as players in this big narrative of what God is going to do to bring his kingdom back on the earth. Right. There's a reason why Jesus taught his followers to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that God's reign and rule would be put in place like it was in Eden, that with the rise of God's selection of Abraham and his family on some level develops into and begins to be understood as the way that the curse of sin is reversed. Right. And, and so, and that becomes very explicit in Jesus. And then as it's explained in the rest of the New Testament, it's, it's clear that that imagery is in play. So they, there was this expectation and hope that, that at Passover, the Messiah would arise. Right. Or maybe this precursor, this Elijah figure would show up 
and the God would intervene. And the way that, that Wright describes it in Jesus and the victory of God and some other places is that there would be this sort of refrain of next year in Jerusalem. Right. That maybe next year the year is the year. Yeah, Andrew Peterson has a great song called Maybe Next Year. It's fascinating. Yeah. And so like that would lead to like uh, in some quarters, uh, folks would leave empty seats for Elijah. The door would be open. Like there's this this symbol, this idea of symbolic action is something that's really uh, uncommon for us. Right. Uh, the sort of lived out metaphors. And so like even at the, 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 the table, you would have like the, the, the tradition at the table would be for the youngest son in the family. And you see some of this played out in various ways in the taking of the Lord's Supper, uh, sort of the last Passover and the launching of the Lord's Supper uh, is this, the youngest son in the family would ask the father, the one who was the host of the meal, like, why are we eating these things? Why are we eating at night? That was fairly uncommon. They had to eat it at night. They had to eat it uh, in these particular things that weren't their normal things. They, uh, they drank um, the wine at the meal, which was uh, particularly wine that wouldn't be black wine, was a bit unique, symbolic of the blood of lambs that were slain at Passover. Mm-hmm. And you've got this taking the meal, and this meal launches the child into sort of this question, why are we doing this? And then the father of the family would say, we were slaves in Egypt with a mighty mm-hmm. hand outstretched arm. God intervened and, and showed that he was the one true and living God. He brought us out from Egypt and we plundered the Egyptians. And, and so the hope is, and this is sort of leads into the prophets, as we look at the Bible as a whole, the prophets, when they talk about what God's going to do to end the exile, they're going to take from the language of the Exodus right? to describe this. And that's why like Jeremiah is going to say, uh, I think it's in chapter 18. It's either 16 or 18. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's 18, 16, but that may not be right, but it's in that realm. He's going to say there that, that when God intervenes and performs this second Exodus, you're never going to talk about the first Exodus ever again. Mm, yes. So, because this deliverance is going to be complete. So, so there's this longing for real forgiveness of sin. There's this longing for God's intervention, for God's reign and rule to come on the earth as it is in heaven, that Jesus is launching. Now, this is sort of what they can't get their minds around in some ways. Right. The expectation is that, that, that the Messiah comes and then it just, uh, you have this protracted reign and rule of God on the earth because all the enemies have been defeated, what, what Luke is kind of getting at is that Jesus has done this thing in the middle of history, and he's launched this new world, but this new world is not yet complete. Right. And that's where we get the already and That's not where yet we're language. living right now. Yeah, right. Just, I think he uses it as the time of the Gentiles, as the language that Luke uses. Uh, yeah. Complete. And even the disciples are confused by that in Acts oh, 1. Yeah. yeah when they, Jesus, are, is this the time where you're going to restore the kingdom exactly. of Israel? Exactly. They're still exactly. thinking in this, I would say an, an, an ethnically centric view of what God's doing versus yeah, this idea of, of, of that, that. That's not unimportant. That story was important, but it had an ending and a new beginning yeah. in Jesus. And you can, and you can see why like that would happen. Like if, if, if we were exiled and, and where you live matters in the story of the old Testament, like if you're living in the promised land, you're, 
you're in fellowship with God. If you're not in the promised land, you're not on some right. level, especially when the temple's destroyed. Like there's this, so there's this reality of where you live matters and the reality of the exile. And so you can totally understand. And it's pretty likely that the Pharisees arose during the exile, or at least arose to prominence. Right. But if you're looking at the world and you say, all right, what got us in this mess? Intermarriage. Right. That got us in this mess. So when we go back to the land, we don't intermarry. You know, and that's been abused, honestly, in the history of the church. That's uh, right. Or like racial inter- intermarriage or something like that. But the point is that you have there is if you married someone from outside of Israel, you're marrying someone who worshiped other gods. Right. This is not, because let's just be honest, they're all going to look pretty much the same that this is not about the color of someone's skin. It's about the God you worship. It's about their theology. It's very different from our world. It's a a theological thing. So if intermarrying got us into this mess, then we're not going to do that. Think about why the Jews hated the Samaritans, why they wanted to get rid of the Samaritans. They were a reminder of that. And frankly, why the Samaritans hated the Jews. And then then you've got, okay, so if not keeping the law and being idolaters is what caused us to be kicked out of the land, let's keep the law meticulously, but let's also build a fence around it with That's our right. tradition so that so that if you were to sort of like get over our tradition, you haven't quite made it all the way to breaking the law. So they're, they're doing this, what they view as a service of, making the law, which sometimes can be hard to understand, or what is exactly does it mean to not break the Sabbath? We're going to give you a very clear list of things that it means. If you do this, you break the Sabbath. If you don't do this, you've kept the Sabbath. And then we're going to, then we're going to get you to keep the law. And there, you know, and then that gets into sort of various strands within Pharisaism of like, how is that going to come? And like, you've got the strand that Saul was a part of that, that, that are willing to resort to force to try right. to make it happen and like there's even sort of this proverbial thing of like if we could get israel as a nation to keep the sabbath perfectly then the messiah would come so you can understand if jesus is not keeping the sabbath and then in the book of acts if his followers are not keeping the sabbath you can understand why and circumcision that's why circumcision becomes such a huge deal same kind of thing like if they're not keeping the sabbath then the messiah won't come and and that's why you know saul would walk six days to damascus to bring these people back that are not keeping the law Right. So they're trying to, to, to keep this narrowed in to get these people to, to keep the law in hopes that whether at Passover or by our keeping of the law, while maybe not earning something in the sort of balancing the scales of justice, they're in a sense putting God in obligation. Right, right. In, which which is really close to earning something like you, exactly you could parse right. the words, but uh, you know, yeah. and, and, and some folks try to sort of minimize the legalism of the scribes and Pharisees, but, but on some level, if they weren't legalists, they would be the only people in the history of the world that weren't legalists. On That's level. right. And it that. wasn't, it wasn't, yeah. if you look at the word legal or forensic, they were focused on the letter of the written law versus what, what Jesus would say is you're, you're tithing from your spice rack but you're ignoring true justice and mercy. And so in that sense, it's a legalism that says right, exactly. the, written, the written law is more important than God's desire for worship and holiness. 
that there's got to be a transformation of the heart, which is, goes exactly. back to what, what Moses said in Deuteronomy. He's going to circumcise your heart or right. uh, what Jeremiah says that he's going he's to write the law in your hearts or uh, in Ezekiel, he's going to replace your hearts of stone with hearts of flesh so that you can serve God. And so it's Jesus. You see that same language used in the book of Acts. Yeah. So it's Jesus is, he's got the Pharisees, he's got the Sadducees, the Sadducees. They're in the same hedron, there would have been a mix of Pharisees and Sadducees at that trial, correct? So, so, and I don't know the exact breakdown of it. There essentially were 70 people that were on it. And while the Pharisees were the largest political group, they weren't the largest group on the Sanhedrin. It wasn't like there were elections for these things. Sure. They didn't so, have the money and the power like the, the, yeah, the, the Sadducees the, did. The, the Sadducees had the money. They had the power. And you can understand why the idea of rocking the boat would be abhorrent. Exactly. Yes. We want to keep the Romans happy. Yeah. So we keep our place. So there, the, the, the makeup of it would have been more of the Sadducees than the Pharisees, but the Sadducees are the ones in charge because they're in charge of the temple, they're in charge of the sacrifices, uh, and they're in charge of, well, and if they're in charge of those things, they're in charge. That's right. And so you've got the Pharisees who are trying to bring change from within, uh, reform from within in various ways um, that were probably a bit more popular among the people. And they didn't oftentimes, I mean, it would be odd for them to get along because, you know, they don't have the same theological views. I mean, theological views made people argue in every century. That's right. Live, you know? Right. And, but they have a common enemy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the saying goes, politics makes strange bedfellows. And that's, right. that's what's happened here. Yeah, Jesus has, Jesus has completely wrecked everyone else's program for how they oh, saw yeah. their place in God's story, which this is where this get, this whole story is. We get into a, a practical application for thinking through as believers on this, you know, 2000 years later, as we think through yeah. the fact that it, from a, from a systematic theological thinking through this from a theological category of God's providence, that God is at, actually at work, even in, is in a Romans eight twenty eight reality of even these things that were political machinations and evil and bad motives and power struggle that God was behind the scenes as with Pharaoh yeah working working a plan so that the very thing that was the answer killing Jesus actually becomes the instrument by which God has opened up forgive he's in the yeah. exile he's into the exile by having the Messiah outside the city in exile right he's, he's yeah. crucified outside the city He's on a tree, which Paul says in Galatians, anyone who hangs on a tree quoting the law is cursed. Yeah. All these, I mean, 21, 23. Yeah, yeah. There's all this imagery of Jesus being cast out to get rid of him, but God is actually at work in allowing, by Jesus yeah. being cast out, we are allowed in. Because you just, just riff on that for a second. Yeah, and that's the thing that's so interesting, sort of, um, that well, think back to what happens in at Caesarea Philippi. So at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is taking his disciples to the north. Uh, they've they've gone to the place where the Gentiles live. They're away from the, by and large, the the ears of the the religious leaders that might have come to Galilee, and certainly from the crowds that came to Galilee. Um, you know, and as you sort of try to 
put together a historical timeline. It's really difficult to do the life of Jesus. This probably would have been uh, in some way not long after, if you sort of look at where the feeding of the 5,000 is in the story in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then uh, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 in John, this would have probably been in the same time frame and how in John he tells us that they that Jesus went away from the crowds because they wanted to make him king by force. Right. I think in, uh, in Mark, you have the five, the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000 in Gentile territory. So you have these two feeding miracles, which leads into this. So it's probably roughly in the same time frame. Um, I would say like, if you're trying to think through timing, it's, it's really tough because if you look at in the synoptics, they don't really tell us when things happen. They could really happen right. at any time in the ministry of Jesus. I think John's gospel gives us a bit more of the layout of the timeline. So sort of trying to use that to help us think through those things. You know, John has the three Passovers where you only have the one in the synoptics that we're told about. But so in that general vicinity of time where people are thinking of Jesus as the king, thinking of Jesus as the Messiah, the crowd wants to make him the Messiah by force, make him the king by force. So in that general vicinity of time, they go north to Caesarea Philippi uh, to a place where the pagan gods and goddesses are worshipped. You, you'll go there. There's a, a grotto to Pan uh, that, that some folks claim, never been able to verify it. The, the, your tour guide will tell you is it was viewed as the entry into the underworld, mm. um, the gates of hell, as it were. I haven't been able to verify that anywhere, but it's kind of interesting given what Jesus says in Matthew 16, but it may be baloney. So just your <laughs> guys will tell you basically anything you want to hear. Right. But there's also a place to worship Zeus and, and other gods and goddesses. This is like a significant place where the, the powers of the kingdom of evil have gathered in a sense. Uh, and so they go to Caesarea Philippi away from the crowds, away from the prying ears of folks that might be wanting to trip him up at this point. I mean, very early on, uh, in each of the Gospels, it becomes clear that the end goal of the opponents of Jesus is death. Like as early as chapter 3, verse 6 in the Gospel of Mark, I think, uh, at the end of a series of controversies, sort of starting with the telling the man who was lame that his sins were forgiven, it yes, builds up to right. this. They were seeking a way to get rid of him, to deal with him. So they go up to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus lures them in. It shows Jesus as a master teacher, you know, asking questions particularly about what the other people were saying. Like the disciples had handed out the food at the 5,000 and the 4,000 feedings. What are the people saying? And, and when you think about it, that's an easier thing to do. Like, I'm not going to stick my neck out and say what I think, but I can sure tell you what somebody else thinks. Right. And they have all of these really great answers. Like, you're John the Baptist raised back to life again. That had been swirling around. Luke makes that clear with the Herod story in the beginning of chapter 9. and some are saying that you're uh, Elijah, because, you know, Malachi said one like Elijah was going to rise up. But the Gospels make it pretty clear, even if John didn't exactly recognize it, that he is Elijah. Right. He's dressed like Elijah. Uh, whether he realized it or not, there, you know, there's some places where he's like, well, I'm not. Yeah, you are, whether you Definitely. realize it or not. And, and Jesus so says that he is. Yeah. Jesus says that he is. That's exactly right. And then you've got one of the prophets. So all these great things, these are what the crowds are saying. All those great things, not correct. And so then Jesus turns the table and he says, well, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter then says, you are uh, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God in Mark, uh, the Messiah, the Son of the living God in, that, in Matthew. But he's getting across this idea of kingship. And then on the heels of that, immediately, Jesus says, and Luke's going to bring this out, like uh, in the passion narrative, he's going to be like, they remembered what he said, or didn't you remember what he said back in Galilee? Mm. And uh, that on the third day he would rise. I think it's the it's the angels that appear to the women at the at the tomb, and that they remind back to these events, like the three passion predictions that Jesus makes, uh, that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Every one of them have it, and he he says there, yeah, that's right. I am the Messiah, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And Peter's like, hold on a minute here. Right, hold up. No. Like, and, and, you know, it's even more stark in Matthew. You know, in Matthew says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, and flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my, this had to be revealed by the Father, that you know that I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he blows it. Jesus says, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to die. And Mark makes it most explicit when he, when, I mean, think about the audacity of this. Peter takes Jesus aside and begins yeah. to rebuke him. That's a strong word, right? In Greek. Yeah, it's a very strong word uh, to rebuke him. Like, I mean, think about the, I mean, like the audacity of Peter to rebuke Jesus. Like, dude, you don't understand this story. Right. The story that you're telling is a story of all the dudes that have come before and have been killed. This is a story of a loser man. Jesus is like, no, this is the story to victory. This is the way to peace. This is the answer for me to go to Jerusalem to do battle with evil, which is what all of the would-be messiahs thought they were doing. They thought the evil was Rome. Jesus is making very clear that evil that I'm going to defeat is, is not Rome. It's sin and death. Mm. Rome might be a symptom of the problem of sin and death, but they're not the problem. Right. And so he rebukes Peter. He gives this statement. Then he explains what it means to be his disciple. Take up your cross and follow, which Luke really explicitly will bring out here when, when Simon of Cyrene uh, picks up the cross and follows Jesus. Like he makes yeah. that really explicit there. So you've got this popular expectation, even among the disciples of what a Messiah would be. And now Jesus has turned that on its head to truly bring in the kingdom. Yeah. It, interestingly, in a way that when the New Testament, when the apostles later on reflect, they recognize this is exactly what the Old Testament, what they wouldn't have called it that. They would have called it the scriptures. But this is exactly yeah. what the prophets were saying. They just couldn't see it without the, the, they needed the story to be fulfilled in order to see how it was going to end. That's right. It's, it's, you know, it's that whole thing, like we oftentimes say, like, I, I should have seen it coming, or we use the language of, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, or... Right. Or we, in, in circumstances that take place in our lives, where we think at the time, like, how in the world can God be in the middle of this? Mm. And while there are lots of times where we might not ever know the answer, uh, you know, where was God in the midst of this trial of my life? Where was God in the midst of this loss in my life? Uh, you know, when I was, you know, for instance, when I was working on my doctoral dissertation, I went through a really difficult time period. Like, I don't know that many people knew this uh, while I was going on. I don't know that I even exactly realized it while I was going on. Like, 
working on a dissertation can be a solitary thing. And I was teaching full time and, and preaching in a church. Like there were lots of things just going on. And I was going from here to there everywhere. And looking back on it, like I realized I was probably kind of in a dark place. Mm. Uh, but, and you wonder like, and, and, and so I had this period of time for three or four years where I was doing all these things, except for the thing I needed to be doing is my dissertation. And, you know, it, and I even had a professor to wonder if I was going to finish. Mm. Frankly, there are some times I wondered if I was going to finish. And, and when you're in the middle of it and you're in this angst and you're doing a lot of things and you're doing good things, God honoring things, and you're in a difficult place and, you, and, and maybe no one else knows it and you're wondering, why am I going through this? Well, the thing is, like in God's providence, if I hadn't been delayed, I'd have never met my wife. Mm. That's a really simple thing, a really super important thing, life-changing thing that, that in God's providence, I, I see that, that he was working in the midst of really terrible circumstances, frustrating circumstances, difficult circumstances to bring me to a point where I would be prepared for on some level and just in the same place as the, my wife. Right. And so that's, a, that's an easy thing looking back on it to see. But then and, and honestly, there are going to be lots of things that in our lives are going to happen that we thought were bad, you know, to use the language of Genesis, like what the enemy meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's we right. may not ever know one thing. We can trust that it's true. We may not right. know that it's true, but, but we may not ever know know fully what those things are and so i think with the story of jesus it's kind of like that 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 on the front end you've got these these difficult to understand passages like isaiah 53 like you know one of the most honest things that you you see like in the book of acts when when the ethiopian eunuch is reading isaiah 53 as someone who doesn't know the way the story is unfolded who only knows it from the the side of the story of someone prior to the coming of Jesus. He's come to Jerusalem to, to, to worship as, as someone who worships the one true living God, but he's always kind of going to be on the outside because of this situation as a eunuch and he's riding in this chariot and he's reading Isaiah 53 and he asks Philip, he's like, is the prophet talking about himself here in Isaiah 53? Mm, right. Is the prophet talking about a group of people like Israel? That was one of the common views of, servant of Yahweh is Israel. And like, is he talking about himself? Is he talking about a group of people? Is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about, and then the other one was like, there were a few, certainly not in the majority that would think, well, maybe this is talking about the Messiah, but the crucified Messiah, that doesn't seem, it seems kind of oxymoronic. Maybe it was a metaphor. How could you put those two things together? Yeah. Yeah. I think some of those, yeah. The only way you can put those things together is a resurrection. Yeah. In the intertestament, the middle period, rabbis or scholars or scribes would have often saw that as some kind of metaphor for the Messiah, the King, or maybe Israel to go through a really hard time on their yeah. way to defeating the powers. Whereas on this side of the cross, we see now it right. all, now yeah. all the pieces come together. And I think that's the really interesting thing and cool thing that you, you see that Luke makes really explicitly clear in chapter 24 and and sets the stage honestly for the book of acts right as he does that you know as he talks about you know the the guys on the road to emmaus like if we turn right. over to chapter 24 
you know, you've got this whole long explanation, you know, Jesus, and this gets that whole thing about his resurrection body, like he's in a physical body, but they don't exactly know who he is, right. whether he looks different or whatever it is, whether they're just not able to see, I think probably it's just sort of hidden from their eyes. I think there's a, a, it's building up to sort of a theological point that we'll see later on is that, you know, they're discussing all that's happened. Like there's like, even after Jesus had told them this, I mean, think about like even the disciples, like, like all along the way, Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And it's like, they're not even paying attention. Right. It's like, they don't get it. And they're completely caught off guard by it. And then, you know, and so you, same thing with these disciples, like this is not the way we expected the kingdom of come. Like how in the world is it that, that, like again, crucified Messiah. These—that's loser language. Right. And so they're talking about this, and Jesus sort of sidles up to them, and it's just really interesting as he as he just plays dumb, frankly. Right. Yeah. Now, verse seventeen of chapter twenty-four, and he said to them, "What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk?" And they stood still, looking sad. I mean, think about that in comparison to the joy we've seen earlier with the women, and we're going to see with them. Um, they're looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only, like, dude, come on. Been living under a rock. Like what's going on? Only visitor to Jerusalem. He doesn't know the things that have happened in these days when he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, like he continues to play dumb. And think about what they say here. A man who was, past tense there, a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And think about like how he was had favor with God and all the people back in chapter two. I think there's a, so, some ways in which Luke sort of uh, bookends the the gospel uh, in, in some interesting ways. Like that he that he was uh, in word and deed before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers notice how it's laid upon them, delivered him up to be condemned by condemned to death and crucified him. And then, like what you were talking about earlier in Acts one six. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Right. This time you're going to restore Israel. It's very similar language. And it's Exodus language too. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And then the consternation. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. They didn't find his body. They came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb. This is Peter found it. was This is the one we'd said, but they didn't see him. Mm. And then Jesus responds and he said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Notice this language about the heart. Like in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart. And how that goes back to Deuteronomy and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, like this changing of the heart. Uh, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Like this is that whole thing of that there's a human reason why Jesus goes to the cross. but right. the overriding reason is that God is sending them there. Like Jesus says in John 10, 18, like uh, no one takes this life from me. I'll lay it down on my own accord and, and I will take it back up again. Was it not necessary that the Messiah, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Mm, yeah. Like guys, you need to listen to what they've said. You need to listen to what Jesus said. You need to listen to what the women said. The other people that went there didn't see him. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, 
the things concerning himself. Now, the thing that I would say about that is, is that I, I don't think it's uh, legitimate to, uh, to say that every single verse of the Old Testament is about Jesus. I mean, sure, right. Overreaches what Jesus is saying. Yeah, right. But I do think what he's saying is, is that the whole story from Genesis to Malachi, the whole story is pointing to this moment. Exactly. And the whole story is pointing to the time when God would enter into the fray. Maybe not necessarily clearly this doctrine of the incarnation, but the, the weird overlaps between this king language and the connections of that king language with God, like, like with the Zechariah passage, like where it's hard to untwist what's happening. Or in 2 Samuel 7, where some of it seems to be referring to Solomon, but there's a lot of stuff. There's no way in the world that refers to him. And, and so you've got all of these things that are interplaying and there's really no way that you're going to be able to, to unravel it until you see the way the story plays out. Exactly. There are yeah. foreshadowings. There are things that like, you know, it's like when you watch a movie or you read a book and you get to the end, you're like, Oh, well that thing now that, that happens was so important. I never really realized it, but I do now. And it makes the right. storytelling better. So he's saying like the scriptures have been pointing to this. And that's so when you get into to the book of Acts and you've got the proclamation of the gospel by Peter in chapter two, by in a, in a strange way, by Stephen in chapter seven, uh, that, that when they're with uh, Jewish audiences, there is an interweaving of the story of Israel, right? Of the story of Jesus into the story of Israel to show that Jesus is the Messianic king who has completed that story and ultimately find out it's not just the story of Israel, it's the story of the world. That's right. And that his death is the proctor. Well, his, the story of Jesus is a story of the proclaiming of a king. Uh, the gospel, while uh, the, the part that makes you a Christian repenting and believing, the gospel is, is a far bigger picture and a far bigger story. Like, you know, in the ancient Near Eastern world, using the word gospel was the description of the birth of a king and the rise of a king to his throne. Right. So it's not a biography about a person. That's not That's what right. it was conveying. So when Mark chooses in the very first verse of his gospel, which I think was the first one written, to define a story about Jesus as the gospel, what he's saying is in a very strange way, in a very dark way in a sense in the gospel of mark that what's unfolding here is the story of the rise of a king to his throne mm. and the way that he's enthroned is in a cross which is right. something you're never going to be able to expect until you see the resurrection right. and so what he's trying to get them to recognize is here in on the road to emmaus is that he has entered into his glory he is going to sit at the right hand of god he has been resurrected, like he says, and now that makes all of this thread of the story that's interwoven, and sometimes in very specific ways, and sometimes it's just the bigger arc of the story, all of this has been pointing to this one moment in history, where all of the sin of the world, all of the evil of the world is, is concentrated on one person in his death, in the place of his people, but not, and this is the thing, like Jesus dies for sinners. 
He dies so that those who repent and believe will be converted. Mm. But when we truncate the, what the gospel is to this personal belief in salvation, we can make it pretty self-centered on some level. Right. Yeah. We can remove from it the demand of a king that we follow under his reign. Right. So that leads to sort of the idea that we can repent and believe and we can do whatever we want and we'll be good on the last day before the king when we stand before him, which is contrary to what Jesus is teaching. Right. Obviously, you also have to guard against the, the idea that when you start talking about the kingship and lordship of Jesus, of some kind of pharisaical checklist, too, because we're certainly sure. good at doing that as well. And that probably is what makes us kind of nervous about talking about kingship and lordship, is the fear of that. And, and you know, what does it mean to be saved by faith alone? Um, I think the way Paul uses it is wholehearted trust, devotion, right. your whole self. Uh, and not just sort of like a, you know, get out of hell free card kind of thing. Exactly. It's not a, it's so not a again, transaction. It's not transactional. You know, he's, it, is, it, he's it is a transaction, but it's up. not transactional. Yeah. He's resurrected. And he, he explains there that this fulfills the story. Mm-hmm. This completes the story. And it's not just for you. And it's not just for the saving of the Gentiles. And this is what you see like in Colossians 1, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just sufficient to save sinners. It's not just sufficient to save sinners in Israel, not just sufficient to save sinners among the Gentiles, that you see this in Romans 8 as well, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is sufficient to not just redeem people, but to restore the entirety of the cosmos. That's right. Everything that was subjected to the curse in the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, because they're these vice regents, they're the reign and rule over the earth. That everything that was unwillingly, as Paul says, subjected to the curse in Romans 8 is going to be redeemed in the end. So all of creation is going to be transformed. Yes. Not just yeah. all of creation, all the cosmos is going to be transformed. That's right. It is going to be the dwelling place of God with his people. And right. that's what the story of the Old Testament is pointing to. And he says, now you can see it with clear you eyes. See He's it. going to explain that again at the end of chapter 24 as well. Uh, you know, in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he explains that to them again and again over the next 40 days. He's going to explain to them that it is necessary that the Messiah should suffer. This is 2446 and rise from the dead. And then that repentance which is a repentance and forgiveness of sins is a, is a pretty unique theme in Luke. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name under his authority to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then he uses that language that's going to be really important in Acts. We talked about sort of the inner workings of that earlier. This language of witness becomes really important at the end of Luke, which is going to become super significant in, in Acts. You are witnesses of these things. And then he tells him he's going to send the Spirit, the promise of the Father, which again is connected to the story of Israel. That right. When God forgives his people, forgives their sin in various places, he's going to send a Spirit. Like Ezekiel 37, like the Valley of Dry Bones, that's about the sending of the Spirit of God. Or in Joel 3, uh, that, uh, that, that Peter makes reference to in the, Saul, the, the sermon at Pentecost. And so as, as we think, as we brought, draw this conversation to a close, and this has been so phenomenal, I'm actually, uh, people are going to listen to this. Daniel, I can't hear oh. you. Can you hear me? 
Yeah, I can hear you. Did you lose me? I lost. Uh oh. Oh no. Uh, maybe my my sound got turned off or something. Could you, you hear me you the still? whole time? Yeah, I heard you the whole time. Okay, good. Can you hear good, me? Good. Yes, I can hear you. Okay. I'm very sorry. I must have hit in all my flailing of my arms. I must That's have all right. something on the computer. Well, I was just going to say, people are going to listen to this either two or three parts because this is yeah, too good to edit is, anything out. Yeah, this uh, is kind of ram. I've kind of gone on a bit. No, no, this has been great. But as we, what you just said, though, I think brings us to a fine point here to, to draw us to a close. As we, you know, one of the things that, that Wright would say and, and others have, have postulated that as we look into actually Goheen and Bartholomew and the drama of scripture, a great book that kind of looks at scripture and right, these right. acts, you know, as we think what you just said, Donnie, about that's where we are in the story, right? Where we're yeah. Peter, in some sense, where Peter and Paul found themselves, we're just closer to the telos, we're closer to the kingdom, right. but we find ourselves in a similar place of being those witnesses, of being filled with the right. Spirit. How would you pastorally say, when we read the end of Luke, we read the, the disciples in Emmaus, where do we find ourselves in that story? What should we be thinking about ourselves? That's a, that's a really great uh, question. And, and I would answer it in, in these, uh, with these two words, that we're redeemed people, mm. that, that we have been rescued from... Uh, the language that Paul uses in Colossians from the, the, the kingdom of darkness and been transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love, uh, the kingdom of his beloved son, like what the voice from heaven says in, in, um, in the baptism and in the transfiguration, that we've been moved from one kingdom to another. So that means that, that who we are is people who are in Christ. If you're a believer, you're in Christ. That is the foundational thing, the foundational not thing, reality that defines who you are. So one of the things I think that that in every era, there there is a quest for identity in some way. Mm -hmm. Like Jews in the first century were clinging to the law, clinging to circumcision, clinging to a lot of things to define their identity uh, in the face of oppression. Mm. You know, they're politically weak, they're by and large economically weak, and they're being pushed and pressed from every side to worship the Roman gods, to go along, to get along, because it would be politically, economically beneficial. And so in every era, this question of identity is, is significant, like, who are we? Where are we from? It's sort of a foundational worldview question is who am I? Right. Where am I from? Um, and what does that mean for my place in the world? And we're going to answer that in a lot of different ways. And, um, but, but the thing that this being redeemed means uh, that I think Paul fleshes out really carefully and helpfully is that like in uh, Ephesians 2, that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God created one new humanity. That's right, yeah. Uh, he, in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, he'll, he'll describe it in this way. You're either in, in Adam or you're in Christ. Yeah. That's the list. So in Adam means that you're under God's judgment. In Christ means that you have the guarantee of the resurrection from the dead. And you not only have the guarantee of final resurrection in the future, you experience resurrection life now because you've been regenerated by the spirit. 
Yeah, that's good. So, so redeemed people rescued out of an old kingdom, transferred into a new kingdom, experiencing a bit of that resurrection life now. Like uh, in Colossians 1, uh, I think it's in one, it's either one or two. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. So even now, Christ is our life. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, you're not defined as Jew or Gentile. You're defined as either one who is in Christ or not in Christ. You're either in Christ or in Adam. Uh, and so there's this new humanity. And the language that Wright uses, I think, is really helpful on a, new, on a level of saying that in regeneration, in conversion, that we are made truly human again. In the fall, we don't lose completely the, um, we don't lose the image of God, but it's marred in the same. Yeah, it is. It's diminished. But, yeah. but in Christ, there is this resurrection in the here and now so that, that we can obey. We are redeemed. We can obey. But we're awaiting the final redemption. We're living yeah. in the midst of that story. We're living out the same story that the followers of Jesus were, maybe in different places, in different ways, but at the heart of it, their identity was no longer found in being a Jew from Galilee. Their identity was found in Jesus. He was the definer of who they are. Everything yeah. else went out from there. That doesn't mean they ceased to be Jews. That doesn't mean, you know, it's like sometimes folks sort of like misread like Galatians 3, there's another Jew, no Greek, slave, or free. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean that those things don't exist. It right. just means that they're not ultimate. That's right. And so like, so when, when we consider those, those realities about identity, like there are lots of things that we can find our identity in. We can find our identity in being Americans. We can find our identity in, the, in our ethnic background. We can find identity in our church. We can find identity in a lot of things. But the only thing in the midst of all of that that's ultimate is that we have an identity in Christ. And that's the thing that Paul's trying to make clear, I think, as he talks to folks that are really dealing with kind of similar struggles that we face about how are we all going to get along together and you know, how are we going to live together in a, in a church family, whatever the thing is that divides us, race or background or practice or whatever it might be, that, that at the heart of it, the question is, are you, are you in Christ or are you not? And so um, when we begin to think of other things as the defining characteristic of who we are, as the ultimate thing of who I am, mm. rather than Christ, we kind of miss the point. And, and it also helps us to see that the only way we're ever going to be bound together as a whole people is under the banner of Jesus, the King. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and not under the banner of an ethnic identity. Uh, I think that ultimately is the is that finding our identity in Christ above everything else is what heals racial wounds. It heals it, it heals any wound that we have because of sin. Right. Brokenness, identity issues, all of that is a result of sin. And the only remedy is to be found in Christ. And that and that comes in being redeemed, being rescued. The second right. thing that I would say along with that, and, and I think it's interesting how Paul brings these ideas together, like in 2 Corinthians 5, 
that you know we've we've received righteousness. That's another way of describing this transformation that's happened. That 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 he, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So we have righteous status because we're in him. But in at the very same time, in that very same passage, he's talking about because of that reality, you are ambassadors. Yes. Right. So that that our place in the story is just like the folks in Corinth, hopefully without all the stupidity and, <laughs> and sinfulness, but our place in the story is to live as ambassadors, speaking true words, the true words of God that are revealed in the scriptures, that they are sufficient to speak to the problems of the first century and the 21st century, and that we're ambassadors of that. We're not speaking for ourselves. We're speaking his words uh, yeah. from the scriptures, which is why we got to know the scriptures. Why we yeah. got to give time to it, uh, give our lives to it, so that in any place he puts us, any platform we have as a coach, as a teacher, as an athlete, uh, as a business person, anywhere we find ourselves, as a mom, as a dad, the kingship of Jesus is over all of that. And mm -hmm. so he's the king. We're his mouthpiece. We're speaking his words these words that give life um, and give answer to the ultimate questions. Yeah, and we're enacting those words with this, this category that, quite frankly, I don't want to overgeneralize, but this category in the New Testament of good works has kind of gotten lost Yeah, because we have at times over, not that you, you can't overemphasize proclaiming the gospel, you can't overemphasize that, but we've lost this other dimension that we enact that proclamation by doing these good, I mean, the New Testament is right. replete over and over again with this phrase of good works or good deeds. And so as we're in Romans 12, 1, in view of God's yeah. mercy, knowing scripture, our bodies then become this living sacrifice to lay down our whole, opening up our homes to orphans, feeding the poor, you know, all the things that Paul encouraged his, his listeners to do, to take up offerings for people who are right. having a famine. That, that as ambassadors, it's not just what I say, it's what I do. Also saying that Francis of Assisi never said preach the gospel and necessarily use words. He never said that, first of all. And if he had, he'd been wrong. So there's these two realities of we speak as ambassadors out of who we are in Christ. And that also affects the way we live, use our money, use our time, so that because of we're looking for a better city as Abraham was. And so there's this, exactly. there's just like, exactly. I think I think we end here that as we have been walking, as, as Paul and Peter were walking out their story and it was radically reoriented around Jesus. That's true yeah. for all of us. We come yes. from a, we come from a place of darkness into a relationship with Christ, and that radically reorients the, the trajectory of my life. Knowing that whatever I lay down yeah. here, as Jesus says in Luke, whatever you lay down, you will get back in this age and the age to come. And there's a there's come. a there's a city and a time and a kingdom for which I'm living that is eternal, that coexists now, I can actually, I can deposit, you know, right now the Dow Jones is down like 50,000 points. I could be depositing into a kingdom that that doesn't go with the Dow or coronavirus. And I think That's for right. believers, I want my coaches, my athletes, my, my folks at my church, I want them to just start this filter of every action, every decision, every every call, every 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 temptation to put my identity. What would the king want me to do? not just in my words, but in my actions. Yeah. I think if that becomes the cry of our hearts, that's where discipleship really becomes formational for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Like that, 
the, the, the way that I, in, in, um, in the seven arrows book, we, we, we talk about what does this passage say about people? That's one of the questions you ask as you begin to sort of move into applying it, uh, in, in your life. And the way that, that I frame that in the, in the book is to talk about the story of people and to overlay that onto the story of, the, of God's work of redemption. Mm. Uh, so God's work of redemption is revealed in the scriptures and sort of to draw upon what you said, what, what I see happening in redemption is that God begins this process in converting you of interweaving his story and work of redemption, interweaving you into that story to bring ultimate redemption on the earth. So you're interwoven into that story and you become a, uh, an ambassador of his grace that you're, you're one who is, is imploring people be reconciled to God and, right. and imploring them. And, and you're absolutely right. Like there is this, this difficulty that we have of, of extremes. Like, you know, Paul talks about, you're not justified by works. And then, so that makes us afraid of doing works and, and sort of like, just not even paying attention to that. When, like you said, like Paul talks about in Romans, like you're justified by faith in Christ alone. And then in chapter 12, in view of the mercies of God, present your whole bodies as living sacrifices. And he gets really practical on how you live this out. Or, or like in, in Galatians 5, it's the same thing. Like that, that what matters is faith working through love. That's right, yeah. So in the end, you know, like, you know, we get really scared and wary of James uh, because James talks about works and that you're justified by works. You know, like, what in the world does that mean? Well, like, there are all, you know, just like there are all kinds of different ways that you can, uh, understand the word lastes that we, you know, translate a robber and translate it as an insurrectionist. Like when James uses the word works, if you look at how James defines that in the context, as we talked about earlier with context, yeah. the context of his book is the very things you're talking about. Taking care of widows, taking care of orphans, feeding the hungry. That's right. Don't just say, be warm and be filled. Fill them. Fill them, yeah, that's right. So, so like there's not a... As long as we are walking with Jesus, recognizing that that our status is something that's secured in the past in his work, not in our work, that's right. then we're freed up to right. live this out without fear of death, without, you know, without fear of, of anything really, because, you know, as Jesus talked about with his disciples, like leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, you know, some of you are going to be killed but not a hair on your head is going to perish. Like they can kill you. Right. But in, but they're not affecting your story and your place in any mm. kind of ultimate way. So we mm. can live without fear. And that doesn't mean that we do foolish things. Sure. It doesn't mean that we, you know, like I said earlier, lick doorknobs or, <laughs> right. or you know, we've got to be good citizens. Like what Paul calls us in Romans 13 to be good citizens, you know, but at the same time, we don't have to live in fear so that if there's someone who's a neighbor who's sick, whether with the coronavirus or anything else, and they're in need, we shouldn't fear to help them to minister to that need because we know that, that if in God's providence I were to get sick, then that's God's providence. That's yeah, right. It's, it's, if I were to die, yeah. that's God's providence. And, and as Paul says, you know, it's far better for me. Right. So we can live in a life of freedom. We can live a life of hope we can live a life um where 
where we can know that that whatever come what may cancer coronavirus you know an injury for a high school athlete in the senior year sports where they may not be able to to finish out yeah. their season it's or serious or, yeah or like or like you know like earlier on i had that banner the the banners the kentucky you know eight national championship banners behind me uh more than north carolina by the way um you know like that was a shock. It was, and I needed to do that at least at one point. <laughs> you know, lives are turned upside down in all kinds of various athletic uh, competitions. Like, like right. our, our baseball team at North Greenville was the number one ranked team in the country in Division Two. Number one ranked team in the country. Really good team. Possibility of winning the national championship at Division Two, And then the NCAA says, well, there's no more season. Yeah, where's your identity? That's, that's if your identity moments. is in that, yeah, that's then right. you're sunk. Right. But if your identity is in Christ, you realize, okay, this stinks. I hate it. It doesn't change the fact that you hate it. Right. It shouldn't, frankly, change the fact that you hate it. It shouldn't change the fact that you're frustrated. But it doesn't wreck your life. That's right. You know, the other day I heard someone, I think it was the president said, like, you know, if if people continue to lose their jobs, if people continue to, if the Dow continues to fall, like we're going to have more suicides than deaths by coronavirus. And, you know, sadly, he may not be wrong. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, but our identity, we, yeah. That's but right. if we find, that, but it gets back to that same thing. If we find our identity in money or our abilities as an athlete or our grades or whatever it is, those things are never going to satisfy. The only one that's going to satisfy is Jesus. Yeah. And, um, and the, the cool thing about it is I think that, that if we, uh, if we get that right, if we realize that, that our identity is in, Jesus, and that, and then we live out the callings that God has given us, the place that, you know, where he's put our story in this larger story. If we live that out faithfully, wherever it might be, then we can take real satisfaction in what we do. Yeah. When there's success, like, you know, when you win a state championship or a regional championship or a national championship, it's sweeter because, because it's in the right perspective. That's right. Yeah. And when you lose that game, it's not ultimate. That's exactly right. Yeah, like, that's a good word. You know, yeah, I live and die with the outcome of Kentucky basketball games <laughs> in ways that probably are not healthy. And there are lots of other people in my state that do too. That's right. And, and, and you're going to find it with different sports everywhere you go. But it, if our ultimate hope is found in that, it's always going to leave us wanting more because at the end of the day, only one team can win the championship. That's right. And it's not going to be my team every year. And I might be able to blame the referees. I do that, you know, I do that a lot. Like when Kentucky right. lost to North Carolina. In or like when Illinois, when Illinois yeah. lost in 05 because Sean May yeah. was getting all That's the calls. I hear that, I hear that everywhere I go. All the time. That's right. Yeah. So like the, the, there are too many 
things in life that we can't control. But when we know that we can trust the one who controls everything to do what's best for us, then there can be the right kind of exaltation in victory and the right kind of perspective in loss. That's really good. That that we can't have otherwise. And it's, I'll be honest, it's really hard to have, even sure. if you walk with the Lord for a really, really long time. Absolutely. Like it is really, really hard to have. But eventually, you know, we can get yeah. some perspective. Like I saw and, Kentucky yeah. lose the NCAA championship game in person in 1997 in overtime. And I went with oh. a friend of mine who was a neutral observer. And I probably didn't talk for an hour. I was so angry. <laughs> right. And looking back, I was like, man, you're a fool. Mm. Like, you got to experience that. It had a bad outcome. But you got to be there. Yeah. And not yeah. everybody, you know, and so like, so like, it gives us a perspective. And sometimes it might take a lot of years to get it. But it gives us perspective. And, and you know, and like, you think about when you see athletes who display that. Think about how when they talk on television, after a national championship game or after a, after a world series victory or loss. And they recognize that their ultimate identity is in Jesus. People look at them really weird. It's really people weird. are going to yeah. look at us weird, yeah. but it provides an opportunity to show where ultimate hope is found. Yeah. And I think that's a great place to wrap up. I think my prayer for my coaches, for my athletes, for folks at my church, my prayer in this time where in some sense, um, God is using this coronavirus for a big old Sabbath and a sabbatical for a lot of us. He's cut off the sports. He's cut off for some folks, economic viability. Yeah. L- Lord, may we please take this moment to discern where our identities and may the Lord use it to pull some of that apart and to give us a better perspective on what he's doing. Uh, yeah, Donnie, yeah. thank you. I pray so that much. will happen. Yeah. Yeah. Donnie, thank you. I want to thank you for your time. You spent hours with us. Um, it's, it's been a joy to talk with you and catch up. And um, absolutely, yes, thank you. and I just want to say to y'all, you are blessed to have Daniel with you. He was, he was just a wonderful student. I really, really enjoyed him, except for the being a North Carolina fan. That that is yeah. a downfall, and I, I, sure. you know, everybody has their flaws. But um, but like he's a joy. He was a joy to have. He's been a joy to talk with over. I can't believe it's been ten years since you graduated. Yeah, uh, I'm really thankful for Daniel, and um, really glad that I got to play a small part very small part in his journey. And I hope mm. that God gives him many more fruitful years there with y'all in Illinois. Although we probably wouldn't mind having him back here in South Carolina again someday <laughs> yeah. too. But yeah. my, God my has given him great yeah. fruitful labor there. And uh, <laughs> and I pray that that y'all would continue to grow as uh, as a team, uh, spreading the gospel uh, mm. in, in various ways with your athletes. Uh, and if you have athletes, send them to South Carolina. We've got some great <laughs> programs. Uh, and... Um, uh, and particularly baseball, uh, which I think I've talked to Daniel. It's a big deal in your area, I think. And, um, yeah. uh, but, um, we, we love our institution and, um, well, I'm just glad, I'm just glad to be able to be with you. And I, yeah. I'm honored to be able to spend this time with you. And I'm sorry that I maybe rambled on a little too much at times. So. No, that's all right. It's perfect. We'll edit. We'll need to edit and, and we'll make it work. All so. Right. Anyway, thanks. Have a great, have a great day. Have a great season of Corona, you know, getting rest and teaching online. Yeah, all becoming things. an online teacher. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's, it's interesting. Right. Yeah. We'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks. Take care, man. See you later. Oh, you Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye.